deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Learn to build lasting wealth through real estate by mastering the fundamentals. That is what people don't understand. You must master the fundamentals to build upon. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed. Along with myself and Ash, Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years, and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner-operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm with Sam Liebman. He's joining us from New York City. He's the founder of Wealthway Equity Group, which focuses on syndications. He has a 30-year career in commercial real estate and his current GP portfolio is over 1,800 units and 30 properties in New York and Texas. He's also the author of a book, that just published in the last month in January of 2022, titled Harvard Can't Teach What You Learn from the Streets. Sam, can you start us off with a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I was a kid from Canarsie, Brooklyn. Came from a very poor family, dysfunctional family. And I just kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And we call Canarsie the Mafia Minor Leagues. Because every kid played stickball, what's father seemed to be connected. But when you grow up on the streets, you learn a certain street smarts. You learn to get your spider sense tingling. You think out of the box. You have to. It's, it's survival. And I used those lessons from the street, and I combined it with a traditional education 
to become street smart and know my stuff. And one of the things we did was we mastered the fundamentals. Started off as an accountant, a CPA, had a firm for a while. Then when I was doing people's tax returns, seeing what they made, I felt like everybody's scorekeeper. They were making millions. I was keeping score. So I said, you know what? I want to be on the other side. Every accountant I know tells the same story of how they got into real estate. Yeah. You have a 30-year career in commercial real estate. How long have you been on the GP side of syndication deals? Well, I started off as a GP. What happened was in 1992, I had worked as a chief financial officer of Mountain Development Corp at 27. And I got what I call my Harvard education there because the company started with myself, a secretary, and the owner, Bob Lee. Three years later, had over 20 million square feet in five different states. So I really got tremendous exposure, which is really important in the learning process. And then through the accounting, I had met one of the clients who called me in one day. This was in 1992 and said, we want to buy all the bank's foreclosures. At that time, you could buy properties for three times rent roll. Nobody wanted Manhattan real estate. And I said, well, guys, when was this? This was 1992. 92. Yeah. Cap rates rent were going from 9.75% to, I think, 12%. Interest rates were 10%. And I always tell people the best time to buy real estate is when nobody wants it. Price you pay is a permanent cost. Can't change that. But if interest rates are high, that's a variable cost. You could always refinance. It could always pretty much go down. And that's what we did. Those properties that I bought for $575,000 are now worth $15 million for a lot of different reasons that we did. And that 9.75% initial interest rate is now 3% or lower. So I said, guys, let's do syndication. What's that? I said, well, instead of buying two buildings with your money, we could buy 10. That sounded appealing until they saw the documents. And I managed to streamline the documents. And we bought our first deal, 110, 112 St. Mark's Place. I remember that September 23rd, 1993, we closed. It was 22 two-bedroom apartments, 50-footer, what we call, and two stores, $575,000. And I remember all we needed at that time was $290,000 in equity, including fix-up. And at that time, under nine people, you didn't need to do a full-blown PPM as long as it was under nine people. So if I got a guy who put in $50,000, now the average went down to $30,000. We had people put in in these buildings at the time $15,000 that are now $500,000 investors. And we bought 40 of those buildings for dirt, cheap. We thought we'd fix them up and we would have cash flow and appreciation. Did we ever think these prices? No. So you're talking about investments that happened 30 years ago, turning 15,000 into 500. Now, how much of that appreciation do you attribute to the 30-year hold period? And how much of it do you attribute to, say, other factors like you purchased a distressed asset and forced appreciation? or you bought in areas where there was, the buzzword now is gentrification, of course, where you bought in sub-markets that have have since shifted. How do you factor for that appreciation over 30 years? Okay, good question. For New York City, the main thing was the political climate that changed. Okay, in 1993, 
most of the buildings were rent-stabilized or rent-controlled buildings. You were only allowed to increase rents according to the rental guidelines each year that ranged from 3% to 5%, depending if it was a one-year or two-year lease. So buildings were in horrible shape because there was no incentive to fix up the building because the rents were controlled. 1994, they came out with vacancy decontrol, which was a game changer. And initially, what that let you do was if you could get an apartment vacant and the legal rent became $2,000 or more, the apartment became decontrolled. So if you had an apartment that was $1,200 a month and somehow you can get it to $2,000, it became decontrolled. Now, what's the importance of that? Well, they came up with this new technique, and it was basically... If you put capital improvements in the apartment, if you improve the apartment, okay, you were able to recoup one fortieth of the cost monthly. So if you put forty thousand dollars in, basically, you could raise the rent. Now, tenant had to be out, okay. Apartment had to be vacant. So from one thousand, I put forty thousand in, make it really nice, get it over two thousand. Let's say I only got twenty five hundred. That fifteen hundred dollars for an apartment. When you divide the extra income by the cap rate for a lot more than $40,000 cost. Oh, yeah. And by the way, and then the city, because everything got better, that $2,500 apartment became worth $4,000, $5,000. So the political climate was a major reason. And it was also, there were a lot of abuses in there, throwing tenants out. The game was get an apartment vacant by any means possible. It's like giving the cat, was it the chicken coop? And this displaced a lot of buildings, but we became multimillionaire. We did it the right way. And there were tenant buyouts, again, using that cap rate formula to increase valuation. And over the years, the cap rates dropped, obviously. Now, that was a change in political climate. What I would tell your listeners now, if they're looking for buildings, beware of the political climate where you're investing. For instance, there's a movement for national rent control. And It is horrible because Minnesota, Minneapolis just passed maybe two months ago, universal rent control, limiting new buildings to 3% increases. And they're all crying, we need more affordable housing. But what developer is going to sign a $30, $40 million construction loan when insurance is doubling, real estate's doubling, operating expenses and construction costs are doubling because of the pandemic. And then they're going to cap you. So 10 projects immediately stop. You could look it up. I want to hear a little bit more about your experience with the changing political climates and markets where you have been buying your properties. I know you have your current portfolio. Some of it's in New York and some of it is in Texas. Mm -hmm. How much did the political climate of each of those states or each of those MSAs play into your decision to invest in those areas? A big part. When we invested in Manhattan, we owned over 40 buildings or so at one time. It was a positive political climate. That has changed dramatically. I will not touch anything in New York City right now. I think I have a couple of buildings left. Sam, let's go back to Manhattan. Can you give me a couple more inflection points? You talked about decontrolled vacant units in 1994. Can you give me examples of other political inflection points that drastically changed the commercial real estate landscape for New York City? Sure. There's a lot of them. Interest rates went down, obviously, over the last 30 years. 
the dollar became stronger. You're talking about now. But over the 30 years, the dollar was weaker. So a lot of foreigners, and there was no virus, a lot of foreigners came into this country because they had cheap dollars. There was also a lot of political, like the EB-5 program and the jobs. What is the EB-5 program? The EB-5 program, I think it was passed during the Obama administration. What that enabled was a foreign person like Chinese or whatever to come to the United States, invest, I think it was originally 500000 and it became a million, and basically get citizenship. Ah, uh, okay. So all the big companies now were getting all this EB-5 money, which was funneled towards these big projects. So it was a way of getting tremendous amounts of foreign investment in this country. In fact, China was the biggest beneficiary. I remember probably about four years ago, the quota was filled in January. That's how Mm. popular it was. And there were other popular programs. Okay. Now there's a lot of popular programs now, the federal. And you're saying that the popularity of these programs for bringing non-U.S. citizens to the United States are having a big impact on the real estate market in New York City. Yeah. They were bringing tremendous amount of capital into the United States. So just to make sure our best level listeners and I are on the same page with you here, influx of capital to the city increases property values, increases rent rates, correct? Well, it increases demand. You bring in the money, you got to do something with it. Yeah, of course. How long have you been investing in Texas? And what about Texas attracted you to the markets where you're invested there? That's a great question. I sort of saw what was going on in New York City a little bit. And about 2006, I think it was, somebody convinced me to go to Texas and take a look at what's going on there. And what I saw was tremendous potential. I saw infrastructure being built, schools being built, technology, and also Cal- there was a migration from California. I think it was close to, at that time, 200 people a day were moving mm. into Austin. You had the West Campus part of Austin, which is where the University of Texas is, and you had about a mile away downtown, and it was vibrant. It was entrepreneurial, and they had a master plan in Austin. It was called UNO, UNO, University Neighborhood Overlay, and that plan really attracted me because they were very pro-real estate, and they were rezoning areas, and they wanted capital to come in and build up the city. You had a young workforce, educated workforce. It had everything except water, but it had everything. They were building parks in Dallas. They were connecting uptown to downtown. So I saw all this going on and I just said, wow, this is a great place. And I just liked everything about it. So you said Austin had a master plan, Uno, and that plan excited you. On a smaller scale, Sam, in the city of Cincinnati, we've seen some tremendous revitalization of the urban core. And there were some major players, both governmental and private capital, in making that happen. Since then, a lot of other neighborhoods and villages and jurisdictions in the MSA have come up with their own master plans for revitalization, publicized them. And many of them have not come to fruition at all. When you see master plans like UNO in Austin, and you see potentially emerging markets that are demonstrating an intentionality about being pro real estate, 
how do you know that these are plans that will actually be acted upon? And how do you know that they will actually result in pro-commercial real estate growth? That is a great question. And the perfect example of that is Atlantic City. Atlantic City. Right. Atlantic City, all the casinos, all the other things that are built there, Atlantic City failed because the jurisdiction there failed to develop the outer areas. The whole reason people Mm. came in was with that promise that they were going to build up the outer areas. Never happened. And that crushed Atlantic City. I'll give you another area. Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. We bought a building there because we were promised. We met with the city council people and they were going to build the Mets or the Yankees. The Yankees had a minor league baseball team they put in. There was a hockey team put in and they were going to do all these things. New jurisdiction came in, new political people, nothing happened. So you're a hundred percent right with that. That is a tremendous point. You don't know because one election can change everything. Is it really the elections that determine whether or not these sorts of master plans come to fruition? Sure. Who's controlling the money? We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Dealmaker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, they've been trained in Michael's unique Dealmaker Blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be. Again, text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind, and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. So let's create a hypothetical situation. I'm tracking some emerging markets, let's say, in the Southeast and in the Midwest. My investors and I are looking for cash flow, but we're looking for long-term growth. I identify three markets hypothetically, where I think strong growth is possible and I am seeing a political climate that is favorable to the development of my asset class Mm -hmm. in these markets. If I see a brilliant opportunity, Mm -hmm. obviously I'm going to pounce. When I'm looking at not necessarily marginal deals, but when I'm looking at opportunities that would require that the market 
grow as is expected in the current political climate in order to reach my metrics, um, what should I look towards to ensure that the current commercial real estate favorable political climate will survive? Should I just be tracking elections? Is there something else? Is it possible? And how can I make myself certain that a market is going to remain with good conditions for developing commercial real estate? Okay, well, it's a good question. And you have to decide if you're going to be a pioneer or not. You know, I don't want to be a pioneer. I'm going to wait to see what's being developed, how projects are getting approved or not approved. And we do look at, in Austin, for instance, how many student housing properties were put in for approvals. You can see, you can talk, but I'm going to wait until I see progress before I jump in, especially if you're doing construction. You want to see unions. You want to see what the climate is there. Are they friendly towards developers? And what are the views? We have an ever-changing political climate now. And depending on who gets in, it can change everything. Just look at the president from Trump, not getting political, but from Trump's policies to Biden's policies, it's 360, 180 degree turn. So what I do is I follow. I don't want to be a pioneer. I want to follow a pioneer and see how it is. By the way, in, in Texas, that's what happened in Texas, in Dallas. It was a company called Power Properties. And on Gaston Avenue, we bought over 20 properties. We watched Power Properties go in, renovate these Class C properties, and we saw the rents they were getting. And they were the pioneers. We just followed them. And we were very, very successful. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Thinking about inflection points, you don't want to be a pioneer. You want to follow the pioneers. I'd like to talk about this using Simon Sinek's language around the bell curve of innovation. I don't know if you're familiar. Let me give a quick summary for our best ever listeners. Everyone kind of knows what a bell curve is shaped like, right? And when you're talking about innovation, you start bottom left corner and you look at the bell curve of the population. Let's say it's the population for us. I'll use two examples. One of them is the AirPods from Apple that are in my ears right now. Someone has to innovate. And that's where the bell curve starts. Apple announces that they've created this new headphone experience, this new phone call experience, whatever you want to call it. Apple is the innovator. Mm -hmm. There is a group of people, a certain percentage. The moment Apple announces any new item, they immediately go wait in line in front of the store 24, 48 hours because they want to be the first to have it. Those people are called early adopters. The early adopters want to see an innovator or a pioneer come up with a great new thing or create change in the marketplace and then they want to pounce on it. After you have the early adopters, you have the early majority. The early majority needs to know that not only has an innovation taken place, but some people have gotten positive results with that innovation. I would be early majority when it comes to these AirPods. I don't stand outside of a store and wait for anything in the cold for 24 hours. But as soon as I saw other people wearing them, I needed to know because I hate holding a phone to my head. And then after early majority, you have late majority, and then you have what Simon Sinek calls the laggards. I'm hearing you say, Sam, that you like to be either an early adopter or in the early majority, when you see that the political climate is favorable in an emerging market for commercial real estate and development, where would you put yourself? And how is it that you identify 
those moments at which you see that the innovators are innovating or you see that there are early adopter developers coming in and that they are seeing some success? How do you track that? Okay. So it was an old saying in real estate, got to have a nose, nose for deals. On my tax return, I don't write when it says occupation. You know what I put down? Opportunist. I'm an opportunist. I made a fortune buying other people's mistakes. Now, you can be a frontiersman and go out in the wilderness if you choose. I choose to find other people's mistakes, obvious value add. My success and what I try to teach my students and followers is to master the fundamentals so you can see opportunities overlooked by others. That's how I did it. I don't go with bell curves. I don't go with this. Yes, I look at demographics. I look at all of that. But you have to get to a point, as you know, as a developer, where most of the stuff you do is on the back of an envelope because you know so much that you get a few facts and boom, that's where you need to be. You need to be where a deal comes in. You can act fast. You know what to do. And that's why I say I'm an opportunist. You haven't yet. But if you ask me, well, do you want to go in the commercial sector? Do you want to go in the residential sector? Doesn't matter. I want to go where the opportunity is. Sometimes it's development. Sometimes it's rehab. Sometimes it's an industrial. Sometimes it's what you explained to me, warehouse, which is very good. So that's what I do. I get so many deals in that you have to weed through them. And I have so much experience that I know pretty much right away which one I want to pursue and which one go into the circular file. Back of the napkin math is incredibly helpful for deal analysis. I know doing my own off-market lead generation here in Cincinnati, I know apartments. Sometimes I don't need the back of the napkin to know whether or not a deal makes sense if it's an apartment building in the size range that I'm already operating. But I'm also looking at office, retail, other commercial uses, and I still need more information and more analysis before I know that I can pull the trigger on something. Well, so that I'm makes gonna, a lot I'm, of sense. I'm going to tell you something that might differ with you. I think office buildings and retail, there's going to be Armageddon. And you're going to be able to pick up those prices at tremendous discounts soon. You don't need to live in a city to do business with the city anymore. You know what the occupancy rate in New York City is right now? 30%. 30%. Now, in my humble opinion, I don't think it's ever going to go over more than 65%. And if I'm right, all these leases that are going to mature, you have a law firm, 30,000 square feet, you're paying in $80 a foot. You only need half the space now. Hello, landlord, we got to talk. I don't want to pay any more 80. I can get better space for 55 across the street. Now, you look at the ramifications of that where the owner now has to retrofit the old tenants from his 30,000 square feet to his 15,000 square feet. Maybe the bathrooms are on the wrong side. He's got to redo that. Costs money. Then he's got to retrofit the new space for the new tenant, 15,000 square feet, right? He's got to pay retrofitting it. He's got to get TI to the new tenant, probably four or five months free rent. He's going to have to pay a broker, right? And he's going to have downtime. Now, that's one tenant, and this is what's happening in Manhattan. So I hear people say, well, they're going to be vacant. Maybe they'll repurpose the space, convert it to residential. Yeah, maybe you can do that. Actually, when you convert it to residential, it's not that easy. you got to cut the building so you lose a lot of space. So yeah. I believe, and I've been through it. Remember, I bought the buildings for 575000 that were $4 million in 1993. 
I'll tell you another story. We bought a package of 15 buildings in Dallas. We paid, I think it was 12 2 Five years before, that package was $56 million. So this can happen. And I believe that the retail sector, because of technology, I mean, we're seeing it happen. And because of the office building issue, there's going to be Armageddon and banks are going to be inundated with foreclosures. I have a lot of relationships with banks and they agree with me and they're gearing up for it. So it's not whether or not you pounce on a deal has has much more to do with the microeconomic factors impacting that particular property and its particular distress, more so than trying to predict the markets that are going to see growth. Well, again, the price you pay is to me the most important thing. The price you pay is a permanent cost. So yeah, when you're talking about where I see it going, I could be wrong. Actually, I hope I'm wrong. But I don't think so. I think one of my successes is being able to time markets. I timed the market in the 90s. I timed the market in the 2000s. And right now we're sitting back. We have a tremendous amount of capital. And we're just sitting back waiting for the right time to pounce in again. There's a shortage of rental housing for a lot of reasons. So I do think that the rental housing sector, which is my favorite sector, because you can get tremendous financing. Who's going to finance an office building or a retail building? You think you can get attractive financing for that? Maybe if you have a small shopping center with AAA tenants, you will. But for an office building, banks don't want to go near that unless you put in a personal guarantee, 50% cash, interest reserves. Who wants to do that? So I go where the financing is, and residential is the place to be. I think residential is going to keep going up for a lot of reasons. The housing market is too big, too strong, too high. People can't afford houses. There's also a change in culture with millennials. You know, a lot of millennials would rather rent. There's a movement now called Build to Rent. Have you heard about that? Yes, I have. Yeah, It's much more popular in other parts of the country than where I am in Ohio because it has a lot to do with market rents. And my understanding is it's much more popular on the coasts than it is in the middle of the country because the rents that you can command are proportionally higher there relative to construction costs. Well, my point was, though, is a change in the younger generation and the older generation that they don't want to own. They'd rather rent. You know, everything's becoming disposable and portable now. So you got to look at that. Restaurants are changing the way they construct their restaurants now because millennials would rather take the food, bring it to their house. It's like my wife and I. At night, she's on her iPad, I'm on my iPad. And it's getting to be with. There's no reason to leave the house anymore, which is sad, but that it's a reality. So all these changes in culture, all these changes, there's a lot of them. People have asked me, so where do you think real estate's going to be? And the answer I say is, it's Bob Dylan's song. The answer, my friend, is blowing Blowing in the wind. If the wind blows this way and interest rates go up, there are other factors or variables I can tell you which way I think it's going to go. If the wind blows right and interest rates go down or, or something happens where they change the laws, I can tell you that. But I can't tell you which way the wind's going to blow. And that's the problem. There are so many more variables than there were years ago. Sam, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Oh, never did one of those. What is the best ever book you've most recently read? My book, Harvard Can't Teach What You Learn From the Streets. No, there's a very good book that I read years ago and I read it again about two months ago. It's called The E-Myth. And it's by yes, Michael, Michael Gerber. Gerber. 
Yeah, I don't know him or anything, so this is an independent one. But the premise is to be a successful business, you need three qualities. You have to be entrepreneurial, you have to have management skills, and technical skills. And if you lack in any of those, your business will fail. I found that to be, it's only like 110 pages, so uh, an easy read. I thought it was a great book, really. Totally. Foundational. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. What is your best ever way to give back? That's what I'm doing now. I've given up trying to be the richest guy in the cemetery. Honest to God, I wrote this book, Harvard Can't Teach You Learn From the Streets, in English, with real-life stories, can learn to build lasting wealth through real estate by mastering the fundamentals. That is what people don't understand. You must master the fundamentals to build upon. It's like being a tennis player, and you got a forehand, and right away, you want to learn the backhand. But... If you don't master that forehand, there's going to be a part in your growth where you're going to play someone that's going to take advantage of what you didn't perfect. So I always mastered the fundamentals, and I'm giving back by doing podcasts that I hope people will learn from. I'm giving lectures. I'm mentoring young kids. I love it because a lot of kids are lost now. And when you mention real estate, it's a big, hot subject now. And you see these kids. In fact, I got a kid coming in Tuesday. He's in graduate school. And he's going to come in and start. And I want to keep getting more kids involved. I love it. I love doing it. And that's how I'm giving back. You're leading right into our next question here. What is your best ever advice? Master the fundamentals. Be a gym rat. Be passionate. Develop passion. That's what I did. Real estate was the perfect industry for my personality. Bricks don't talk back. I never wanted to get involved with raises and salaries of people, but I love increasing property value really turns me on. I've never been focused on how much money I was going to make. I always focused on if I do this right, there'll be money. Master the fundamentals, love what you're doing, and don't take shortcuts, especially in due diligence. Sam, how can our best ever listeners get in touch with you? Samleben.com. I'd be happy to go in, just join free. We have articles, we see all my buildings. And with the building, I put a story of what we did to it pretty much, which is, I think people nice. find very interesting. But my passion right now is to teach. I'm working on an online real estate academy called Street Success Real Estate Academy. I market myself as the kid from the streets who overcame a lot, became successful. And I'm the same guy I always was. And, and straight talking, no bullshit. And that's it. I'm who I am. And I did all right. Awesome. Well, best ever listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you've gotten value from this episode, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a five-star review and please share this episode with your friends so that we can add value to them too. Thank you and have a best ever day.